many of you have had a first-hand encounter with sheep. I think when we see them in kids' books, we have sort of this picture that they're sort of fluffy like a cotton ball. And the reality is, and I'm not denigrating those who have and love their sheep, uh, sheep can be kind of messy. I first realized this when the church I grew up at was doing a living nativity, you know, one of those things that goes through some of the events connected with Christmas, only with actual animals and actual people outside in winter. That was, that was interesting because um, here we were in our shepherd robes and underneath we had our snow pants on and all that because it was cold and boots, which was good because like I said, sheep can be kind of messy. But even so, Perhaps for those of you who've never had sheep or livestock to take care of, you can relate to this with the pets that you've had. They might be, have some sort of defect. My cat's ears are all torn up. People comment on it whenever they see him. They're like, oh, what happened to him? I don't notice that because I see him all the time and I'm kind of used to it. Maybe for you, it's some other undesirable feature about your dog or your cat or whatever other pet that you have, it's, it's something that someone looking at it would say, why are you attached to this creature? And yet you are. You know them, they know you. When you come home, they run to greet you. When someone else comes in, they run and they hide under the bed sometimes. The same is true, and these, these images sort of overlap as we look at what's going on in this passage. The good shepherd cares for his sheep. Sheep which are imperfect, undesirable, full of flaws, yet he loves them and cares for them, and they know him and love him. They recognize his voice, they come to him, he leads them. There's a relationship between the shepherd and his sheep. And yet, Further building on this idea that I think it's easy for us to sort of romanticize a passage like this and say, oh, sheep are fluffy and beautiful and, and Jesus just wants us to have this warm, fuzzy feeling. Notice what verse 1 says. It's a warning. Truly I say to you, he who does not enter the door into the fold of the sheep but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. That's an odd way to start out for this sort of happy story of how Jesus loves his sheep. Why this warning? Well, consider the passage that came right before it. The Pharisees, after he heals the blind man, and after the blind man believes, and after the blind man worships Jesus, chapter 9, verse 38, Jesus says, For judgment I came into the world, so those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. The Pharisees say, Are we blind too? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, we see, your sin remains. And John takes this account, which happens probably about a month and a half, two months later, given the timing of the Feast of Booths, a harvest feast, versus the Feast of Dedication, which was usually maybe around the first week of December. So something like two months between the events of these two things. But John puts them right up against each other to show that this is a transition, a warning, I think, to the Pharisees, the leaders of the people. In fact, if you have an NIV, it even says, truly I say to you Pharisees, because they think they see that connection rightly. Jesus has been rebuking 
the Pharisees for their spiritual blindness, now he turns to reproving them for their selfish and terrible leadership of the people when it comes to spiritual things. And he draws this extended contrast between himself as the good shepherd and the Pharisees as evil and self-serving hirelings, false shepherds, even though they have that role of leadership over the people. How would you respond if someone came along and said, hey, you know that job you're supposed to be doing? You're terrible at it. You know, here's all the things that you're supposed to be doing. You're not doing this. You're not doing this. You're not doing this. You're not doing this. We'd start to bristle a little bit. We'd start to get self-defensive. But if we pay attention to the important truths in this passage, the right response that we see at the very end of the chapter is to repent when we encounter Jesus. When someone human comes along and says, I'm your replacement, whether it be at work or something else, there's a little bit of friction. But Jesus is perfect. Jesus does it in a way that none of us could ever do. And so if our response when we encounter Jesus as the good shepherd is to feel threatened and to see in him some sort of opponent to be gotten rid of, there's something seriously wrong with our hearts, as is made clear in this passage. So Jesus is the good shepherd. What is true of the good shepherd? Well, first of all, Jesus knows and is known by his people. We see this in chapter 10, verses 1 through 6. I started out and I read verse 1 already. Thieves sneak in not by the proper opening. We see this when somebody breaks out a window in a car or in a house so they can get in and steal something that's valuable. When they pry something open that's locked, these are the actions of thieves, not of the person who's supposed to be there, but of an imposter. The same is true in connection with this imagery that Jesus uses of the good shepherd. The shepherd doesn't have to climb over the wall because he's supposed to be there. He comes to the front gate and the opening in the wall where the doorkeeper, the watchman, the guard is standing there, maybe watching three, four, five flocks of sheep overnight, he lets him in because he recognizes him. He's supposed to be there. These other people, they're not supposed to be there. So there's this warning, this danger. Watch out for these kind of people. The doorkeeper lets him in, verse 3. The sheep hear his voice. Like I said earlier, maybe you don't have sheep, but you have some other pet. When they hear your voice, when they hear the particular way that you walk, they recognize you. They come running to you. The same is true of the sheep. They know the shepherd. They hear his voice. Uh, apparently, some of these uh, nomadic peoples, when they were keeping sheep, they would have particular phrases that they would say or even particular songs that they would sing, and the sheep would know that that was the person who was watching over them. They would follow after him. This is the imagery that Jesus is using. A stranger they won't follow, but they'll run away from him because they don't know the voice of strangers. What does this have to do with today? And this is not perhaps the main point, but it is a point to consider. There are those who would, in an age when there are many people lying and angling for our attention and seeking to lead us in one direction or another, there are people who will claim to be speaking for God and who are not. They are the false shepherds, much like the Pharisees were the false shepherds in Jesus' day. What sort of characteristics do we need to watch out for in those people? Well, 
We're going to see next that Jesus does good to his people. And in contrast, these false shepherds are only in it for themselves and in fact even willing to harm the sheep to get what they want. So let's look at that next idea that Jesus does good to his people. Verse 7, Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Now when he's using all these pictures, they're not really following what he's saying. Look at verse 6. They did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. So I want us to be careful. Your experience may not be sheep. It may not be shepherds. Some of these ideas may seem somewhat unfamiliar. Don't miss the important points of what Jesus is saying just because the picture is unfamiliar. They were blind to the truth, and you and I don't have to be. Jesus says, I'm the door of the sheep. So before, he says, I'm the true shepherd. I have a right to come into the sheepfold. So it's true versus false. Here, it is, I am the door of the sheep. I watch out for the sheep. I do good to the sheep. And so there's a little bit of a transition from being the one who walks up, is greeted, and comes into the sheepfold to now in this second picture, he's the one guarding the entrance to the sheepfold. I'm the door of the sheep. You can't come in unless I let you in. I'm the one who lets the sheep go in and out of this, this enclosure to keep them safe. In contrast, he says, verse 8, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. Now, when he says the sheep did not hear them, I don't think we should take this as an absolute statement that they ignored everything that people who came before Jesus said. Because there certainly were times when there were large groups of people led astray in Israel by false prophets, evil kings, selfish and wicked religious leaders. That being said, I think there was always this recognition that the Messiah had not yet come, the true shepherd had not yet come, the one promised in the Psalms to be the descendant of David who would care for his people had not yet come. Even the best of the kings and the priests and the leaders of the Old Testament did not live up to this ideal that God had laid out for the people. So I think when Jesus says they did not hear their voice, I think that's what he's getting at. Something's lacking, something's missing, something's not quite right. Verse 9 is very important. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. We're going to see a very similar phrase when we get to John 14, perhaps the one that we're more familiar with. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But that's not the only place that John shows Jesus making that point that he is the only way to God. Here, he is making it very clearly, I'm the only way in. If you want to belong to, be part of my people, I'm the only way. You can't climb up over the wall. You can't wander around and just happen upon it. You have to come to the right place through the right person. And that's because Jesus is the Son of God, a point he'll make later in the chapter. In contrast to Jesus, who wishes good for the sheep, especially in the next section, even willing to lay his life down, verse 10 says, The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So remember how I said that we need to consider what this has to do with today? We don't have a particular class of religious leaders who are the ones that we look up to. We're not the Israelites living in Jerusalem 
uh, in Judea, led by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all these religious groups, they're not the ones who are the bad shepherds who are in it for political power and personal gain and all of these things. But I think the danger still exists today that you and I have to watch out for false shepherds. The same Apostle John is going to write in 1 John that the spirit of Antichrist is already in the world and there are many Antichrists who have gone out into the world. There are still people today who oppose the work of Christ, present themselves as the Messiah, and are in it to take advantage of people. And that's really what it comes down to. How do we know if someone is a good shepherd versus a false shepherd? A good shepherd who loves this sheep versus a hired hand, someone who's just in it for themselves? Well, I mean, there's a lot of overlap between what we see here and what we see Paul and Peter saying in their descriptions of false teachers. How do they describe false teachers? False teachers are those who are greedy. They want money. False teachers are those who are hypocritical. They want, they say they want one thing for you and they actually are doing something else. False teachers are those who don't actually care about you. They want to get something from you. And so this attitude of taking, whether it be money or reputation or attention, this attitude of selfishness, I only do what I want only for me and this is just a means to an end, these are characteristics of false shepherds and hired hands even today, thieves, those who come to plunder rather than to give. See the contrast here. The thief takes. Jesus comes to give life abundantly. Do you see the contrast, the difference? Jesus builds on this even more in the next section. Jesus is so concerned about the good of his people, the good of his sheep, that verse 11, he lays down his life for the sheep. And he says this a number of times in verses 11 through 18. I lay down my life. I lay down my life. I lay down my life. You know what the ultimate test is of whether someone cares about you or is just in it for themselves? At the first sign of danger, verses 12 and 13, the hired hand, the false shepherd, the one who's in it for his own gain, runs away. You know what the attitude is? It's the person who works at a store and the, and the, the manager says, hey, that shoplifter's taking all this stuff. And the response is, yeah, you don't pay me enough to deal with that. He doesn't love the business. She doesn't love the job. That person's just in it for the money and the money's not good enough to say it's worth any kind of personal sacrifice to protect whatever's here. In a greater sense, when we're with regard to people, if someone at the first sign of difficulty says, eh, it's been fun, guys, but I, this is too hard, this is too much work, I don't really wanna, I don't wanna put my reputation, my life, my freedom, even my life on the line for you guys, so see you later. That's a characteristic of a false shepherd. Jesus, in contrast, is so invested in the good of his sheep, of his people, that he is willing to go to the cross and die. Not yet, by the end of this passage. At the end of the passage, he goes across the Jordan because it's not yet the right time for him to die. Beginning of December, he's going to die in the springtime. We've got three or four months before it's time for his crucifixion. 
So not quite yet, but very soon, Jesus is going to lay down his life for his people, for his sheep. And so this warning, watch out for these false shepherds. They come at it the wrong way. They're only in it for what they can plunder from the people. They run away at the first sign of trouble instead of being willing to do any kind of sacrifice. Jesus, on the other hand, is known by the sheep, lays down his life for him, for them. And in fact, he makes an important point here in verses 16 through 18 that this is the whole purpose of his ministry. Look at verse 16. Well, verse 15, first of all. The Father knows me and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. Because Jesus is connected with God the Father as the obedient Son, that's why he goes to die for the sheep. And verse 16, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. Now, we know from church history that Jesus brings not only Jews, but also Samaritans and Gentiles to be his people. Now, whether this passage is referencing Jews who have not yet believed in him versus Jews who have, or Jews versus Gentiles, doesn't change the fact that Jesus' ministry is not limited to merely the audience that he's talking to right in that exact moment. I tend to think he's talking about the broader expansion of his ministry to Samaritans and Gentiles, but regardless, the point is the same. Jesus lays down his life not just for those here who are following after him, claiming to be his disciples, but for others as well. And he does this willingly, according to God's plan, because of his relationship with the Father. Verse 17, For this reason the Father loves me. Why? Because I lay down my life, so that I may take it again. It's not, I lay down my life and that's it, story over, the end. Jesus lays down his life that he might be raised, that he might be exalted, that he might return to reign someday. And Jesus does this because it is part of God's plan, because he is the obedient son, because he has authority to do so. By agreement of the Father and the Son, the Son goes to the cross. According to God's eternal purpose, the Son goes to the cross. With the expectation that he will be raised afterward, the Son goes to the cross. And so we see here in verses 1 through 18 that Jesus is the good shepherd. There's this great contrast between Jesus and those who are false shepherds, those who are thieves, those who are self-serving. And so at this point, I think we should pause and ask ourselves this question, do you know Jesus? Do you have the kind of relationship with Jesus that, and I'm not trying to be disrespectful or, or, or minimize the importance of this, do you have the same eagerness in your relationship with Jesus that your dog does when he comes and runs to greet you at the front door? Or is it an indifference? Uh, yeah, I don't really know this person. Because it's all well and good for us to gather at church, to hear God's word, to know the right answers, to be, you know, I'm not saying it's sinful to try to outwardly be kind to people and all those kinds of things, but if we don't actually know Jesus, have a relationship with him, eagerly follow after him like the sheep of this passage, like the pets that you and I know today, if we don't have that sort of relationship, 
familial relationship, close relationship, loving relationship with God, we've missed out on what the Bible teaches us about Christianity. And I don't know about for you, but, but growing up, I think it was easy for me, not through any evil intention of the people who were teaching me, but it was easy for me to assume, as long as I know the right things, don't get into trouble, read my Bible fairly often, pray sometimes, give money to the church, God is happy with me, everything's good. But the relationship that Jesus calls us to as his people is a lot more than just a friendly nod to the neighbor across the fence. In another place in John, he's going to say, I'm going to, I'm going to come and make my dwelling with him and we will be at home together. Like That's a, a close relationship. And we see that here in this passage. So do you have that with God through Jesus by the work of the Spirit? The only way you get it is by Jesus giving his life. You don't get this relationship by coming to Jesus and saying, hey, I'm a pretty good person. Because the answer, the reality is that we're not. You don't come to Jesus and have this relationship and say, here's all the nice things I've done. Here's this gift I'm going to bring to you. You need Jesus' gift on your behalf, not trying to bring your gifts to God, because bringing your gifts to God is kind of like if somebody was really generous and gave you a $1,000 gift, and you're like, hey, let me, let me pay you back for that. Here's 50 cents. It's insulting. You're not paying it back. You can never pay God back for what Jesus did. You can never earn your way to God, but the, what you need instead is to accept Jesus' gift in your place. His life in place of your life is the only transaction that God will accept in terms of salvation. If you're someone who has spiritual oversight of people, you teach Sunday school, you teach Wednesday night, you teach your kids at home, you need to examine your heart and say, which one of these am I more like? Am I like Jesus is the good shepherd, coming out at the right way, in it for their good, willing to serve them even sacrificially without thanks, without any sort of benefit to myself? Or am I only doing this because I want something from them? Am I not accusing any of you here of that? I'm just saying it's a constant thing we have to guard our hearts against. If I ever get to the place as your pastor where I say, hey, you need, you know, I need more money and I want less to do with you, I hope somebody comes up and says, that's wicked. That's like the false shepherds in John 10. You shouldn't act that way. If any of you find that motivation creeping into your heart, I'm doing this just because of something I get from these people instead of the service God has called me to do, then we're not serving the good shepherd as good shepherds under him. We're serving ourselves. We've got to watch out for that. Mostly, the people missed the point that Jesus was making. But they got enough of what he was saying to have an argument about whether his words were true. Verses 19 through 21. There's a division. We see this a lot in these chapters, starting with, as I recall, chapter 6. There was this, this division. Um, chapter 6, the bread of life. There's this division among the people because Jesus says hard words. And then chapter 7, there's this division among the people. Is he a good man? or a bad man, because he comes down to the feast. And then there's all this about Jesus being the light of the world. And there's, again, a division. We see this over and over again in, in this festival section of the book of John. There's a division 
Some people on one side, what do they say? He has a demon, he's insane. He's speaking evil and he's talking crazy. Why would you listen to him? And other people say, wait a minute. You're saying he's evil, why is he doing good? You're saying he's crazy, why is he making sense? And that's the division. That's the same division we're going to encounter today whenever we present Jesus to people. We see this time marker in chapter 10, verse 22. At that time, the Feast of the Dedication took place. It was winter. Like I said, probably early in December. The Jewish calendar doesn't line up exactly with the calendar that we use, so it moved around a little bit relative to our months. But early in the winter, some have seen in this a picture of the condition of the people's hearts because they're pretty cold and spiritually blind at this point. I don't think that that's an untrue observation in the same way that Nicodemus sneaks around at night and uh, Judas comes to betray him at night and all these sorts of things. But that's not the main point. This is when it's taking place. A few months after all these other events, a few months before his crucifixion, he's in the temple. And what's their demand? Are you the Messiah? Just tell us. Quit all these stories and pictures and parables and teachings and all this obscure stuff. Are you the Messiah? At first glance, asking questions to understand something better seems like it is a sign of actual interest. But there's the subtle reality that sometimes us asking a question is actually a demand for an excuse not to do what, we want, what we're supposed to do, not to believe what we're supposed to believe. So for example, if someone says to you, hey, go wash off the chairs in the backyard. And you're like, well, which chairs are you talking about? You don't actually want to do the thing that they're telling you to do. You're looking for a way out. So when they say, are you the Messiah? They're acting as though he hasn't said all these other things that he's already said. They're acting as though, well, if he answers this way, we can get out of it that way. If he answers this way, then here's this is our excuse. And so what seems like an innocent question and a desire to learn and a wanting to actually know him better is actually a sign of their unbelief. He's told them all this over and over and over again, and they keep looking for excuses to not listen to him. The Jews wanted yes or no answers, not stories. The main point in this section being Jesus is the good shepherd only for his sheep. Uh, this is an important point because I think in our world we want to say something like God is love, Jesus is the good shepherd, and we want to act like that includes everybody in the whole world. But there's a very real sense in which Jesus is the good shepherd only for and to his sheep. That's not prejudice, that's not bias, that's just facts. Jesus is not the good shepherd for those who hate him and don't want to follow him. The Jews fell in this category here. They wanted yes, no answers instead of the stories, the figures of speech Jesus was using. Tell us plainly if, if you're the Messiah. Jesus' response, verse 25, I already told you, I told you, and you do not believe. I said to you, and I did works to show you, you have enough evidence. You don't need me to say, I'm the Messiah, because you already know that I am, you just don't want to accept it. 
So then the question is, do we, like Jesus, when we encounter someone who doesn't want to respond to the gospel, should we change the method so that maybe they feel like they would understand better? It's a reasonable question. If in, in public speaking, they say, if you look out at the audience and everybody's like, then you say, all right, they all look puzzled. Maybe they need to say it a different way. But that's not what Jesus does here. What he does here is he keeps using the same picture he's already been using. Why does he do that? Because the issue was not did they comprehend what he was saying, although it was perhaps part of it. The issue is they refused to listen. And so I think the deciding factor for us between whether we try to explain something again using a different picture or try to make it slightly more clear, if the person just doesn't understand particular words of what we're saying about Jesus, explain it again. But if they understand it and they're coming up with excuses to reject it, I don't think we're obligated to try to change the method of presentation because Jesus doesn't hear. Instead, he, he sticks with his picture. He says, you do not believe. Why? Because you're not of my sheep. The issue was not, we need more information. The issue was, they weren't even willing to follow him at all. He was not their shepherd. They were not his sheep. They didn't know him. They didn't want to believe him. They didn't want to do what he said because they had nothing to do with him. Jesus says, 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. That is, by definition, what a disciple is. Here's the one who teaches. Here's those who follow closely after him. Not just listen, not just know what he said and done, but actually follow him. Like we said a few weeks back, Jesus, when he did the, the miracle of giving them the tons and tons of bread and fish, they wanted a free meal. Jesus wanted disciples. Right here, they want curiosities, intellectual arguments, all of these sorts of things. They don't want to commit to him as the one they need to follow. But those who are his people, he says, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. Why is it that they will never perish? No one will snatch them out of my hand. Verse 29, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand because he's greater than all. And then, because we're both connected, I and the Father are one. Now, quick pause here. This is a profound truth about the security of salvation for those who are God's people. If you, in fact, know Jesus and you hear him and you follow him, you do not have to wonder if someone is going to be able to steal you away from him and you're going to lose your salvation. There's parallels with what it says in John 8 where it says nothing can separate those who know God from his great love. That being said, I think it is easy for us sometimes to jump too quickly to the assurance and skip over the question, which the whole question that stands behind this chapter is, are you one of his sheep? What does it mean to be one of his sheep? Well, let's think about what the passage has showed us. 
To be one of Jesus' sheep is not you walked past him one time in the pasture. What would that look like today? I prayed a prayer. I felt a thing. I cried once when I heard some religious thing. Our relationship with God has to be a whole lot more substantial than that. It is an ongoing relationship with Him that we continue to develop, that continues to grow, that it's not just like, yeah, that one time 30 years ago there was this thing and I've kind of gone my own way ever since. We need a relationship with God that is ongoing if we want to claim the assurance and confidence that John 10, 27 to 30 holds out for us. That's really important in our world today because for a lot of years, there were times in churches where we basically like walk the aisle, sign the card, pray the prayer, you're all set, don't worry about it. And so whenever somebody would say, I have doubts about my faith, we'd say, did you do the thing? And we, they'd say, yes. And we'd say, you're good. Look at John 10, 27 to 30. Look at Romans 8. We don't want to give people false assurance. We don't under, want to undermine the faith of people who really know God. So part of the test, which ironically, John also writes 1 John, which is tests of assurance and faith. What are those tests that he talks about in that book? Things like, do you love God, do good to the brethren, and hate sin? Based on the foundation of knowing the truth about who Jesus is. So those are some tests for us. Do I really know God? Here's some tests. But right here, the question is, are you one of his sheep? If you are... Great confidence, great assurance. If you're actively trying to kill him, oppose him, not wanting to follow him, no confidence whatsoever. What was the response of the Jews here? Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Why? Well, in verse 30, he's just said, I and the Father are one. You know what that means? He's claiming to be God. Do you know what that means for them? He's blaspheming. No man can claim to be God. That's evil. That's wicked. We're going to get rid of him. We see here from these last few verses that Jesus is the good shepherd both in words and in actions. Jesus has this interesting dialogue with them back and forth. They discuss what he said and what he's done. They have their stones ready to kill him. He says, hang on a second. Which good thing that I did is the reason that you're trying to kill me, which is in and of itself an evil thing? So for which good thing do you do this evil thing? This is not justice. This is hatred. This is not obeying the law. This is murder. This is not punishing a criminal. This is you getting rid of a, a political opponent in your minds. So for which of the good things that I did are you trying to kill me? Was it the fact that I made the lame man walk on the Sabbath? Was it a fact that I helped the blind man see on the Sabbath? Those were both good things. There's no argument there. So for which of those good things are you trying to kill me? They said, no, it's not about what you've done. You being a man, make yourself out to be God, verse 33. So they don't try to argue with him about whether or not it was a good work because deep down they know that it was. They just say, well, you're a man. You can't claim to be God. Jesus has a surprising response here, and I don't want to spend too long on this for sake of time, but I think we need, we need to catch what's going on here. Jesus said, verse 34, Has it not been written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, 
Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Now, to understand the context of what's being said here, let me read for you a little excerpt, probably what Jesus had in mind. It seems to be the closest reference from Psalm 82. Psalm 82, God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. How long will you judge unjustly? Okay? So God is judging wicked judges because they're taking advantage of the people is the context of Psalm 82. Down in verse 6, he said, I said, you are gods and all of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. So, Jesus is basically taking a passage where there are people who are so exalted in their opinion of themselves as judges over the people that they view themselves as God to the people. Which interestingly echoes, I think, Jethro's words to Moses in that passage in, in uh, Exodus where he says, the people, you are as the voice of God to the people. So there's this idea that these people in their minds are so exalted that they are as gods to the people and yet they've forgotten that the true God is the judge over all of them. So when Jesus uses that passage to these people who have that same kind of pride and say, we are way up here above the people, we are as God to the people, he said, in your own mind, you're as God to the people, and yet you're going to stone me who is actually God for coming and claiming authority over you? Do you see what's wrong here? Jesus said, not only my words, but my actions show, verse 37, if I do not do the works of my Father, don't believe me. But if I do them, though you don't believe me, you don't believe my words, believe the works. If you don't want to accept what I've said, you at least cannot deny what I've done. Why have I done it? So that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him and he eluded their grasp. Notice the arrogance of the crowd that's ready to stone Jesus. They're confident that they are right. They're confident that God is pleased with them. And yet they are exactly like the false shepherds of Ezekiel 34 and the evil judges of Psalm 82. And when God says, I am the good shepherd and rebukes them as false shepherds, and I am the true God and rebukes them as false gods, he is pointing to their spiritual blindness and their arrogance in establishing themselves in opposition to God himself. Jesus escapes because the time had not yet come for him to die. Like I said, that's going to come several months later in the springtime at the time of Passover. What does Jesus do? Jesus goes to the place where John had been baptizing. And this is a scene change that sets the stage for what happens in chapters 11 and 12 and I think 13. But I want us to focus on it because I want to contrast the response of what the people across the Jordan have versus the people Jesus has just been talking to as we wrap up this morning. Jews in Jerusalem, they observe the festivals, they know the right things to do, they're respected by the people, they got it all right. Then there's the Jews on the other side of the Jordan. The tribes looked down on them because they thought, oh, they're being lazy, they don't want to go take the land. 
they're kind of lesser than us because they're not with us here in the more important part of Israel. There's this subtle attitude among the Israelites that the tribes that settled on the east side of the Jordan when the land was being conquered were a little bit not as good as everybody else. And yet what do they do? Look at verse 41. Many came to him. He's beyond the Jordan where John had been baptizing. He's staying there. Many came to him and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true, many believed on him there. Rejection, pride, spiritual blindness, seeking to stone him, acceptance, faith. They didn't say, are you the Messiah? Are you not the Messiah? Give us a complex theological argument. They just said, hey, Look at what John did and said. John didn't do anything amazing, but he spoke truth. Everything in Jesus' life matches up with what John said. We believe in him. What God wants, what Jesus wants as the good shepherd, is for sheep who are sheep. They're not trying to be the shepherd. They're not trying to fight with him. They look at what he's done. They look at what he said. They say, it's true. I believe it. He's my God, my Savior. I follow after him. Jesus is the good shepherd who cares for his sheep. Make sure that you're one of his sheep. Make sure that you know him and hear his voice and follow him. His words and his work show him to be true. Follow the good shepherd. Let's pray. Dear God, as we have looked at these truths about Jesus as the Good Shepherd, may we meditate them on, meditate on them more throughout this week. May they affect our lives. May we see just the simple picture of the love and affection of someone who cares for those under his oversight. They know him, he knows them. There's a relationship, there is an affection, there is a just a sim simplicity to what's going on there. And sometimes we want to complicate it, and sometimes we want to just reject it outright, as those in this passage do. Lord, I pray that we would follow and understand the simple truth about who Jesus is and what he does. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.